know how many of you have seen, uh, I'm sure you're aware of this by now, there's all these challenges that kind of come up on the internet at different times that go, that go viral, that go uh, one day somebody's doing it and then like two days later everybody is doing it and so different things pop up at different times. Some of them good, some of them not bad. Like uh, years ago it was the, the ice bucket challenge, you're going to dump a bucket of cold water on your head and it was to raise awareness for ALS and that, that kind of thing or, or uh, I've seen one recently where it's like people doing a certain number of push-ups every day to just remember, be aware of uh, soldiers, former soldiers that are suffering from PTSD or something like that. And so some of them have good thoughts behind it, but some of them uh, in some ways I think just become like digital peer pressure. It's like do something really dumb and then video yourself doing the dumb thing and then show it to everybody because everybody's doing it. And so different ones at different times have, have become popular. There was one years ago, um, I was kind of slow. I'm always slow on when these are happening because I don't really have much of a, my social media game is very poor. I don't really know when these are happening, but I'll read an article about them a little later, like, hey, this is happening. And I remember reading an article about one called the cinnamon challenge. And people were taking a giant heaping spoonful of cinnamon and trying to eat it in 60 seconds without drinking anything. And the article I read after the fact is all these people are doing this, videoing themselves doing it. And the article I read was like, this is really dangerous. Like, you can't breathe. You can choke. Uh, it can get into your lungs. One kid ended up in the hospital for like four days. One guy had a collapsed lung, all this stuff. And I remember reading that and being like, what kind of knucklehead would do that? Like, this is crazy. And about that time, I came home to find three smaller humans that live in my house. And the older ones decided that it would be a good challenge for their youngest brother. And I remember being so mad, right? Because I had just read the article. And, and I found out, fortunately, I found out after the fact. It was over and it was done. I found out because the youngest came and said, hey, I almost died today. And I was like, wait, what? Now, that's not an uncommon phrase in my house, sadly, but at this time when he started to tell me, I was like, oh no, he really could have. And I was so, I was just like, oh, how can, and so I remember going and, and talking to the boys and telling them like, do you understand how dangerous this is? And being like angry, but not like really angry at them, but angry for them. Like how dangerous that is to just take something that you see on the internet. Hey, we'll do that. That's a good idea. We'll do that with our brother. And I remember thinking about that and kind of working through the, this, this frustration, but really the, the anger was born out of concern for their well-being. Like I was so like, do you see how serious this is? And I remember that so vividly and that feeling. And I was thinking about that this week, um, really that, that feeling of, of concern that's born out of uh, or that anger that's born out of concern because you love them. And I was thinking about Jesus walking into the temple and what he sees. And it's one of the few times in the gospel, and there's a few times that this happens, where you see Jesus really angry. And he walks in and what he sees. And I want us just to think about that today. What is that born of? Why does he react the way he does? What happens in this episode that we see in John 2. And so the way I want us to look at it, as we look at John 2 together today, that passage that we just read, is first I just want us to consider his action, consider what Jesus does as he comes in and he takes in the scene and then what he does. Secondly, what were his reasons? Why does he react the way he does? But then lastly, what is his purpose? 
What is he after? What is he teaching and all that? And so his action, his reason, and then his purpose and what he does. And so let's just start with the action of what happens. I'm going to read just the beginning of it for you again. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so I want us just to think about this scene for a second. Let's kind of set the scene. What we've been doing is we're walking through Jesus's life in kind of chronological order unfolding. And so I'm going to lay my cards on the table with this passage in particular. You actually see Jesus cleansing the temple in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think that John places this early in Jesus's ministry, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke later. I think he actually does it twice. Now there's some debate on that. Some people say, well, John put this up front in his gospel for thematic reasons, not timeline. I think it's thematic and I think it's timeline. I think he did it more than once. And so I think what happened is Jesus went into this very early in his ministry up front. So we're We would be in A.D. about 28, early in his ministry. Passover takes place end of March, early April. So there's your timeline, April or March of A.D. 28, and he comes in. Later on, a couple years later, this this kind of reemerges that it's happening again, and so he drives them out again. That's, That's what I believe. And so just laying my cards on the table where we are. But I think we're early in Jesus's ministry that he comes in and this happens. But just some background on what's going on, the scene that's here, right? Verse 13 tells you the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so each year, the Jewish people would go to the temple. They would make a pilgrimage to the temple to celebrate these different things that God had put in place with Passover being one of the biggest celebrations they have. If you know your Bible, if you read through way back in Exodus, God saves his people, kind of turns them into a people as he draws them out from uh, slavery in Egypt. And as he does, he institutes this time of Passover. And he says, you're going to do this each year in remembrance of the way that I saved you. And I brought you out. That's where it starts. And so this has been going on for a long, long time when we get to this point. And so the Jews would come up to the temple to have this celebration each year for Passover. In fact, in Luke's gospel in chapter two, it tells us that Jesus and his family would go up each year. So he's been doing this his whole life as an observant Jew. They're going to go as part of their people, as part of their worship, and they come up to Jerusalem for Passover. But if you know your history and you know the Bible, uh, if you go back, even if you were with us last year when we did the, the study in the book of Daniel, in the Babylonian exile, some 600 years before this, the Babylonians came in and destroyed everything in Jerusalem and the people were scattered, the dispersion. And what happened was later on, they got to come back and rebuild the temple and worship started again. But lots of the Jews never came back and they lived kind of scattered all over. And so when you had these big holidays, people would come from all over to worship at the temple, to come here, to make their sacrifices, to do this, to be part of this uh, celebration. And so you had people traveling from all over because they had been scattered. And so whenever that happens, whenever you have lots of people coming into a place for worship at this time, this great big season as they come in, you have industrious people, you have people with a need, businesses arise. And so what happened is because people were traveling from such distances, instead of bringing your animal that you're going to sacrifice with you, you'd wait till you got there and buy one from basically a vendor. I can go here. I don't have to travel with it. 
I'll get my sacrifice and then I'll go into the temple. And what we know from history is over time, that was outside the temple, kind of like, uh, I hate to make this analogy, but kind of like when you go to a, a big sporting event and they're selling water and all kinds of stuff outside before you go in, right? Like your last chance before they, re- they really get you inside. And so it's kind of that we're, we're selling things that you need here. But over time, what had happened is it had moved from outside the temple, this great big place where they would come, and it had actually moved into the outer courtyard. Now, there's a little bit of details we need to know about the temple. The temple itself, as you came into the temple and you entered in through this colonnade and you went into this great big courtyard, it was called the outer courtyard. And that was the place where the Gentiles could come to worship. They couldn't go any further. And then there were inner courtyards that you could go into as a Jewish person. And then the most inner one for your sacrifice, the last of the sacrifices, was you had to be an Israelite and a male. And so there were these different kind of levels. But what had happened is what they're selling here, it tells us they're selling the, the animals and the sacrifices, money changers, exchanging your money for you. You can imagine if you're coming from long distance, different coins, different money, you come in. And so all this has been set up in the outer courtyard. It's actually moved into the temple complex. And this is what Jesus sees as he comes in. And so you just kind of have to have that picture in your mind of what's going on and you see what happens. And so Jesus walks in and he looks around and he sees all this. And so what does he do? It says in verse uh, 14, in the temple, they were found selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers and making a whip of cords. He, talking about Jesus, drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. It's a pretty bold move, right? He walks in, he surveys the thing and all of a sudden he gets to work. Like he goes and he, he, he fashions a whip, says a whip of cords made of probably like a plant type thing so he can get those animals out so he can hit the animals to move them out. He goes to the people that are changing money and he dumps out the money and he flips over their tables. You get the scene here? Like it's pretty intense. And I want you to think about this. Early in Jesus' ministry, he's calling disciples to himself. He started to do a few things. Right preceding this is the wedding at Cana where he turns water to wine. His disciples started to believe, yes, he's the Messiah. They're starting to follow him, but it's a small group. But he walks into that place, relatively unknown, and begins to clear it out. And he makes a scene, right? You can imagine how that goes over, what that would be like. In the middle of this courtyard, he starts to drive people out and flip over tables. And I want you to just think about that. Have you ever seen a scene, something like that before, just in your life? I'm not saying at a temple where they're driving out the the money changers, but just in your life, right? Have you ever seen something like that? I I remember being at a a restaurant once with the boys. I think we were at a, what's that called? Steak and Shake. And a guy quit very dramatically while we were there like threw down his thing and was like, I quit. And everybody got really quiet. It was like, Ooh, what was that? Or, or, or better than that, I remember being a, a freshman in high school, maybe somebody making a scene with more intention. I think that guy was just mad in that moment. But with intention, I had a coach in high school. Uh, I was a freshman on junior varsity basketball team. And Coach Craig, my coach, was a real young, kind of fiery guy. And one day in the middle of practice, he was like, that's it. I'm going home. Get out of here. And he yelled at all of us. We're all like, what? And he went over and he grabbed his jacket and he put it on and he grabbed his bag and he left. And it was like, you know, practice two hours long. This is an hour into practice. And we were all like, what just happened? Coach just left. 
Did he quit coaching us forever? Is he gone? Well, come to find out, he, it was a big dramatic move on his part because we were playing terrible. We weren't practicing hard. We weren't whatever. The next day, he kind of brought that up and rah-rah and got us going. And it was this big dramatic move that he was making, right? He made the scene for a purpose. And so when we look at what Jesus is doing here, I think Jesus is very purposeful in what he's doing. One, I think he's angry. One, he's incensed at what he sees. One, he's doing the right steps that he should with what is in front of him. But I think he's also making a point. He's making a gesture to get their attention. And so I want us to think about why. What's the reason here? The action is he walks in and he sees this thing taking place in the outer courtyard and he drives them out. And everybody would have been going, kind of like in that restaurant, like, whoa, what just happened here? Everybody's kind of looking around as he's driving these things out. Why is he so angry? What is he doing in that moment? And so look at what he says in verse 16. He told those who, were, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And we get a pretty good indication of what he's thinking and what's going on as he does, as he comes in there. This is the temple. This is the place where you come to worship God. This is the place where God has set up where a holy, righteous God can be near a sinful people and you come into this place to worship. You come in this place to have a relationship with God, to grow closer with him, to be reminded of your great need, to see clearly your own sinfulness and God's holiness. And he walks into this place and it's been made into a place of busyness, right? It's loud and there's uh, overrun with people and there's animals and there's distraction and there's activity. And it's not just busyness, but it's business. People are making money and changing uh, currency, haggling with each other, buying animals and all the things that are going on. And he walks into this place that is designed to be a place that facilitates worship. And instead it's doing the exact opposite. It's now a hindrance to seeing who God is. He walks in expecting to see the place of the temple where you come and solemnly walk in and seek the Lord in his face. And instead he finds a Walmart. And he walks in there and it's like, what is going on? It's upsetting the true meaning of what's happening there. And not only that, it's become very transactional in the way it works. Instead of coming in with your sacrifice, this very solemn thing where you're making a guilt offering and you're confessing your sins, you're walking in and you're haggling for the animal that you're going to buy so you can turn around and hand it to the priest. Do you see how that suddenly become not something that is alerting you to your heart's need, but it's become very transactional in nature, something that you kind of check off your checklist. Yeah, I made my sacrifice. I got it. Here you go. I'm done. And now I'll be on my way. And Jesus sees all this and he's furious. He sees this noise and all that's happening here. But I really want you to think about why he's so angry. What's at the heart of this? And there's a couple things we need to think about. First, what is the point of the temple? What are you coming for? And what's really happening in those sacrifices and what you're doing? And then secondly, why did Jesus come? Because there's a clear connection between the two. And so when you just think about the temple for a second, it's true purpose. I'm going to oversimplify this because there's a lot of things that happen at the temple. 
But as I said, it's a way for God to be near a sinful people. When he first starts this and gives this to the Jewish people, it's way back in Exodus. He leads them out of slavery, and then he begins to give them plans for what's called the tabernacle, which was basically the temple, but it was movable at the time. Later, it would become established as the temple. But it was a way in which God could dwell with his people despite their sinfulness. And the whole thing was set up that you kind of journey through it. And as you get closer to the center, that's where God's very presence was. And it was this important thing about how that there was a, a barrier between us and God. And we couldn't just walk into God's presence because of our sinfulness. And so sacrifices were set up around that. They were to teach you that, to help you to see that, to see your great need. And so you would come into that courtyard and into that temple and you would make your sacrifice for your sin, for your guilt. And what you would do with that animal is you would lay your hands on that animal and you would say, my sin deserves a life. But God has allowed this animal to take my place. And you would watch as you confessed your sins and you laid your hands and then they took that animal and they slit its throat and the blood poured out. It's a pretty intense thing. It was to show you the seriousness. It was to show you that there is this barrier between us and God and it's our sin. But it's also to remind you that God is so gracious despite our sinfulness and despite this barrier that he's made a way to be close to us. And that's what's happening in the temple. But then when Jesus comes in, all of that is being distorted by the noise and the business and all the things that are going on. And on top of that... If you were a non-Jewish person, you were only allowed to go in the outer courtyard. The only place that you could go for worship. You couldn't process any further. And now the only place that you have has been overrun and been made into a market. And I think all of those things were part of it. Because that was the purpose of this temple. To come and to be near God and to see him and to have this relationship and this worship. But then I want you to think about what Jesus has come to do. And what the scripture tells us about who he is and what he's come to do in his relationship with the temple. Already, as we're walking through the gospels, we've seen like John 1, Jesus is the light that comes into the world and shines into the darkness. He is the logos, the divine truth that shows us how things are and the way they were created to be. And he's coming to rescue his good creation and draw us into that relationship with God. Bring us back to what we were created for. And really what it is, is the temple is a picture of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's a placeholder before the Messiah comes to show us in shadow the reality of what's coming in Jesus. Does that make sense? Hebrews uses that language. If you can see up here, you can see my shadow right there on the floor, right? See the difference between the shadow and then when I'm standing here, right? A shadow gives you an approximation. You can see my outline and about how tall I am and my legs and you can see my shirt. But you can't really see it in fullness. And that's what the temple was to Jesus, to what God was going to do. There's this barrier between us and God and it's our sin and you'd come into that place and you'd make this sacrifice and you'd lay your hands on this animal and you'd say, I don't deserve to be in God's presence. And you'd go through this process and you would see that And you do it year after year and festival after festival and you come into this place and you see so clearly your sin. But now in this moment, Jesus walks in and all of it's being perverted and distorted. And this is a picture that's supposed to point to Jesus. 
Hebrews chapter 9 says, but when Christ appeared, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He walks into that place that's supposed to point to him. That's supposed to show your need and God's holiness and what that looks like. And he sees every bit of it as a mess. And he sees people who are in desperate need that know they're sinful, that know they're broken, that are walking into that place. And in being, and instead of being met with this thing that it was designed to be, there's all this other noise and stuff that's there. And I want you to think about that. The very God of the universe that has stepped down into his creation and he walks in and he sees that, of course he's going to say, get out. How can you do this? Don't you know what this place is supposed to be and how it is supposed to point to him? And when you place it in the whole of what God is doing throughout scripture, of course Jesus is angry. Of course he throws over the tables. What are you doing? And I want you to think about that as he does and as he comes into that place and all that he's seeing and he's looking at in front of it. He's angry because he loves people. You're distorting this thing that God has ordained that points to Jesus and you're making it harder for people and you're making them not see the picture here. You've perverted what God had set in place to point to Jesus. And I think about him walking in and throwing over the table and being angry. And I'm in no way comparing myself to Jesus. But it's the way I felt when I learned that the boys are doing the cinnamon challenge. (laughs) What are you doing? You can't do that. Do you understand what that could do? How that could hurt your brother? Right? When Jesus walks in there, I think there's part of that. He loves people. And this is putting a barrier up to coming to God. Get out. You can't do that here. And it's precisely because he loves that he begins to clean out the temple. He has this right conviction that his anger is born out of seeing things clearly that they're not seeing. And that's what Jesus will do in everything. Right? Connect that back to the very first week when we said he is the logos. The logos is the divine truth that when you see Jesus, you see him acting and operating perfectly in the way we were created to. And this is a distortion. Get it out. And so I want you just to think about this before we get to the last part about his purpose. As he cleans out that temple and he begins to do that and he's driving these things out because of his great love, removing those distractions, anything that's taking our eyes off of what God intended in this. And I want you just to consider for a moment that God is with us, never leaves us or forsakes us, that if you put your faith in Jesus, you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are united with Christ He is with you in all things. And so I really want you to think about this for just a second. What is he saying to you today as he walks into the courtyard of your life and in love, you need to clean these things out? What's there that's a distraction? What's there that's making your relationship with him 
a religious checklist versus a relationship? What's there that's so vying for your attention and your affections that you don't have time to focus on the creator God of the universe that has made you and invited you into a relationship with him? You say, well, what do you mean? How does he say that? Well, he says that in his word. He also says that when you ask him. God, would you show me if there's anything in me that is distracting me from you? The Holy Spirit brings healthy conviction in your life. Please understand, healthy conviction in your life is not guilt and shame, but God will show you things that are not healthy, and he will immediately surround you in his love and say, and I've taken care of all that, come to me. And so I just ask you to consider that today. What is it in your life that's vying for your affections and your attention? What is the noise that's making it harder to hear and see God clearly and ask him to show you that? It's precisely because he loves you. Conviction from the Holy Spirit is because God loves you and he wants your best. And so ask him to show you those things. So as you look at this, right, he's come in, he clears it all out. He makes the scene, throws these things out. He's incensed, there's anger there. But what's his purpose in doing it like this? Remember, he's kind of unknown at the point. People are starting to know who he is. This is still in the first year. It's early on. What's he after? What's the purpose of what's happening here? And so I want us just to think about that, but look at what happens next. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so I want you to think about what happens here. Right. He comes in. He drives all this out. Everybody's kind of standing back watching the scene unfolding. But he does it. Gets them out. But then the question comes from the religious leaders. What authority do you have to do this? Give us a sign. And you're going to see this repeated over and over in the Gospels. Jesus is going to do and say things and they're going to go, who are you to say that? Give us a sign. And they're always asking. But I want you to notice something here. They immediately say, give us a sign. What authority to do this? But no one stops to think, was he doing the right thing? Nobody goes, hey, why didn't we do this before? Right? I mean, he was doing the right thing. And in fact, I think the religious leaders should have taken it upon themselves to do this way before. But yet, instead of taking this correction and what he's doing immediately, it's like, who are you to tell us? I want you to just think about that for a second. Do we not do the same thing? Somebody corrects us on something, and even if we know it's right, our pride wells up and goes, well, who are you to tell me? Or we start to defend ourselves, even if we know we're wrong. You ever done that? Somebody corrects you, you know you're caught, you know it's wrong, but you still start to defend yourself. Why is that? It's our pride. We make it all about us. And I don't want you to tell me. The the boys and I were joking about the other day. I stopped the car to get the, the trash cans. Hey, we grabbed the trash cans. And I don't remember which one. I think it was Jed said, uh, Now I don't want to do it because you asked me to do it. (laughs) 
He's like, I was going to do it anyway. And I wanted to do it on my own. And we were joking about it together. Like we all do that, do we not? Like I was going to do that anyway, but now that you asked me, I kind of don't want to do it. Our pride wells up in us. I wanted to do it myself. I wanted it to be my idea. And we all do this at different times, every single one of us. We let our pride get in the way. And I think it's the same thing that happens here. They immediately get corrected and they know what Jesus is doing is right. And so they say, give us a sign. Now, look at the way he responds. Right? They say, give us a sign. You're going to tell us what uh, authority you do this. And so what does he say? Yeah, I'll give you a sign. Tear down the temple, destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're all like, can't do that. Took 46 years to build this place. What are you talking about? You're going to raise it up in three days. And so Jesus does give them an answer, technically. I'll give you a sign. Tear this down and I'll raise it up in three days. Now, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about, did they? Remember, I've said this as we're going through the Gospels. It's important to remember. There's the original audience that's there in front of Jesus and what they understood. Then we have John writing after Jesus's life, death, resurrection, the spread of the gospel and what he understands. And then you have the audience of us reading it. The original audience to what Jesus says, nobody has a clue what he's talking about. Tear this place down and in three days I'll raise it up. John even tells you that if you look closely, right? It says, but when he was speaking about the temple, the temple of his body, and then he says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. John tells you, like it wasn't until after his death and resurrection we knew what he was talking about. So why, what's his purpose then? What's he doing as he steps in there and he cleans out the temple and they say, give us a sign. And he says, tear this down and in three days I'll raise it up. What is he after in all this? He's showing them, he's pointing them to himself. He's saying, I'm now here, this is going to be obsolete. Now they didn't get any of that. But I want you to think about, we talked about the very first week, Jesus being the logos, the divine truth that steps in and shows us the reality of how things are. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Our inclination is, well, do, us a, do a sign for us. Jump through a hoop for me, God, so I can see if I approve of what you're doing. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Right? Remember, uh, two weeks ago when we were in uh, the beginning of John 2 with the wedding at Cana. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And he says, what does that have to do with me? Right? He kind of stiff arms her. I'm not doing things that you're telling me to do. I'm doing exactly what the father tells me to do. Same thing here. Give us a sign. And he goes, I'll give you a sign. I'm going to make this place obsolete. And he's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's showing them that the purpose is that he is the one that's come to replace all of this, which I think what John's doing, remember different audiences, audience two, John writing to his audience. I think it's why he puts these two right together, right? The, the temple, tear it down and in three days, I'll raise it up. Jesus is saying, this is all going away and I'm replacing the temple. Remember the purpose of the temple is to be the intermediary where God can be close to a sinful people. Jesus is going to be the way that we come to God. Same thing with the wedding at Cana. Fill up the jars of purification and he turns that into wine and he makes that obsolete. You are going to be pure through what I do for you. 
Jesus' purpose and what he's doing all the way through his ministry and even here right at the beginning when they don't fully understand is he's showing them that all of this points to me. I am now here. I am the way that you're going to approach God. When he says, tear it down in three days, raise it up. Think about what he's saying. His death is the ultimate sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. That's what Hebrews says. Right? I read that to you just a second ago. He entered once and for all, not from blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. And so when Jesus lays down his life and he takes on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him, and he triumphantly rises again in three days, the temple is now obsolete. We come to God through what Jesus has done in him alone. And that's what he's telling them right there at the beginning. He's setting the mark of his whole ministry. This is all pointing to me and what I've come to do. He comes to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And quite frankly, he doesn't need our approval. Right? They say, show us a sign. And it's like, the logos, the divine truth is here. I don't jump through hoops for you. I let the blazing glory of the truth of what I'm doing stand on its own. I don't have to jump through hoops to tell you. I don't have to justify myself. I'm showing you. Why don't you think about when everything he does? He's showing us exactly what truth is and what it looks like. And that's really good news. It's really good news that we worship a God that doesn't need his approval from us. That we worship a God that's not jumping through hoops so that we can go, oh yeah, that's, he, he did what I thought he should do. It, it'd be like if you let your house be run by small children. Right? I mean, think about it. You're the parent. They're the child. You run the house, not the other way around. If God was doing that for us, that's that'd be awful. But the divine truth comes and he does exactly what we need. And he begins to point to himself over and over again, pointing to the cross. And so we're going to see this repeating throughout his entire ministry, that it's all pointing to him and what he's done for us. And that is wonderful good news that Jesus has come to accomplish what we never could. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you love us so much to step in to our mess and call us to you. I thank you that you boldly show us that it's all you and you're doing. And so help us to see clearly. I pray that the things that are a distraction in our life, the things that we continue to turn to, that we let crowd out in our life, that you would just continue to remind us that it's all you and you're doing that you are to be central in all things, that our greatest joy will be found in following you in that way. And so give us eyes to see you for who you are and what you've done. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.